This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, you know EMS service in the province of Alberta is under extreme stress. We'll get into that story. We'll also talk about wastewater monitoring in our province. It seems to be the best way to keep track of what's going on with COVID-19 and more tension building along the Russia-Ukraine border. Where could this lead? We're talking about ambulance service, EMS, in, in the province of Alberta. Now, you've got COVID-19, you've got the opioid crisis, you've got extreme weather. There's all kinds of reasons, staffing levels, all that stuff, coming together to create a perfect storm where um, we're into dangerous territory, and we, we have what are called red alerts, where essentially if you call 911, there's not an ambulance available. Uh, and it's happening multiple times a day uh, right across the province. It's... It's hard to wrap your head around. So let's get some details. Uh, We're going to chat now with Mike Parker, who is the president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta and also an advanced care paramedic. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us once again. We've talked before. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay, and thank you for your time as well. So just give us an update on the situation. How how bad are things out there? We're hearing all kinds of terrible reports. I can give you uh, this week's uh, current uh, consolidated numbers uh, as of Monday till this morning where we see about 100 red alerts in the province just this week so far. We've got seven uh, pieces that I've been informed on where there was a response time of greater than one hour. Uh, specifically to Edmonton, the nearest ambulance to a 911 call was coming out of Cold Lake for a time. Specific to Calgary, a unit was dispatched out of Medicine Hat as the closest available ambulance to a call in Calgary. So that's kind of a quick snapshot of just this week's uh, updates for you. Um, and now... This is not um, an extraordinary circumstance. I mean, obviously, it's a crisis situation. That, that's not good news. But this has been going on for some time, right? There's, there's nothing. I wish I could say this was new or news, but it's not, Shay. This has been going on for 10 years, steadily, steadily getting worse. Uh, we've got the additions of things like, yes, uh, a COVID uh, issue. We have things like an opioid crisis that nobody's even talking about anymore that is all making an impact. And if AHS is going to talk about things like cold weather or smoky skies i've got no time for it anymore because that should be the surge capacity of any emergency service to handle those little bumps well let's let's not kid ourselves here uh when we're in code red every single day in this province we have our dispatch uh communications officers hanging up on 911 callers because there are so many more callers coming in we are doing all of these pieces to try and mitigate our staff are burnt but they still show up every single day shay Okay, so here's the question. Uh, like you say, this has been an ongoing issue for, for a number of years, um, but obviously it's worse now than it has been. Um, it's more of a crisis situation. Um, how did we get here? Why is it so bad right now um, compared to what it was, say, this time last year? I think that your, your example in the opening of a perfect storm might be part of this conversation for sure. For the last 10 years under AHS, we have seen zero increases in resources to the front lines, yet our call volume has um, uh, jumped by 50% in the last couple of years. 
We have added no paramedics to the front lines as our population growth in this province. So the province is growing and the EMS system was left stagnant for the last 10 years. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, We reached out to... um AHS, we tried to get them to come on the show. We haven't been able to yet. We're trying to hopefully have somebody tomorrow. But they did send us a statement. And in the statement, they said, AHS has increased the number of paramedics by 9% over the last two years, from 2,659 in 2019 to 2,891 in 2021 to date. Okay, we're into 2022 now. No, (laughs) this is only paramedics. Does Mm -hmm. not include other staff. So we're talking about a 9% increase in paramedics over the last two years. Are you saying that's not true? Well, I'll be honest, I can't believe a thing out of their mouths anymore, but I'll tell you what, Shay, you and I talked a while ago, I believe it was last summer, when there was this big hoopla about moving 100 paramedics into full-time jobs. I think, you remember that? Yeah, well, I don't know where that's happened yet, and those people are already working on the front lines more than full-time hours anyway. So all you've done is shift a group. There was no additional personnel added. I think it's a shell game they're playing. I want to know exactly, you show me where those trucks are and who, the, give me the names of the people on them, because I don't think they're being truthful. Okay, so you're saying AHS has not increased the number of paramedics in Alberta by 9% over the last two years, as far as I, you can tell? As far as I can tell, Shay, I don't think that's a truthful statement. Uh, what I hear from the front lines, from members directly on the street, and I'll quote this one, we are floating on the debris of this healthcare system right now. We are in trouble. This is directly from the front line. So don't tell me you added 9%. It didn't do a damn thing when I see a unit being dispatched at a cold lake to Edmonton just a day ago. Um, when we take a look at, like you say, the repositioning, AHS also, and, and I'm sorry I have to rely on a statement. As I say, we reached out okay. to them because we'd love to ask them as well. But they also say red alerts typically last a few seconds to a couple of minutes. They're a concern even if they last a very short time. During a red alert, AHS EMS responds to emergencies by using tactics such as repositioning units from other communities, deferring non-urgent transfers, deploying supervisors, and using single paramedic response units as needed. To me, it seems like they're trying to say, okay, we hear about the red alerts where there are no ambulances available. And they're saying, okay, but put it in perspective. It might be for a few minutes, tops kind yeah. of a thing. It's not as big as people make it up to be. Do you think that's true? So here's, here's how they define the red alert uh, within the system. Let's call greater Edmonton area population 1.5 million, give or take. They go down to zero ambulances. Uh, they redeploy. They start bringing in units from outlying communities, which leaves the West Locks with no ambulance, which leaves the Mournvilles with no ambulance. And then they've solved the red alert. Gee, that was only just a couple minutes long. Now, remember, when you call 911, the closest available ambulance we dispatch to you, unfortunately, Shay, that truck might be coming from 100 kilometers away, yeah. so it isn't so bloody close, is it? So that's the chamois that they keep playing here. Yes, we do, at times, need to call in all additional resources. Absolutely. Listen, we called that back in Tornado 87. We had to call in anybody and everybody. They used the radios to broadcast all off-duty paramedics, please report to work. We're at that level every single day now because we cannot. I mean, when you go to code red with 1.5 million people, I don't care if it's a minute or an hour. When they use the term, the majority of people get an ambulance in a reasonable time. Well, I hope to hell I'm not on the minority in this conversation because when I have to wait for an hour for a paramedic to come walking through the door, listen, nobody calls 911 because they're having a good day. No, They of course. call 911 because they have lost control of the situation. They need help. Um, 
Okay, last one here. Bottom line, and this is what it comes down to. Red alerts, all the rest of it is response times. When you call, are you going to get an ambulance? In the statement from AHS, I'll ask you to respond. EMS response times are up over the last few months, but not significantly. Response time targets for Edmonton are normally 8 minutes at the 50th percentile, 12 minutes at the 90th. In December of 2021, the median was within 8 minutes. The 90th percentile is slightly higher at about... 14 minutes. Not unexpected given the substantial increase in demand for EMS services. So you talk to AHS, Mike, and they mm-hmm. say, you know what, yeah, th- there's pressure on the system, but nothing out of the ex- out of the ordinary. It's certainly manageable. So where where's the truth in all this? Well, I'm going to give you this. Uh, somewhere the truth lies, apparently. Uh, when I'm being told, and I have to state this clearly, anecdotally, this is coming from the members on the street. That 30% of our folks are off on mental health injury right now because the workload has devastated this workforce. When we see response times of up to an hour, don't tell me that you are making your targets. Uh, I don't know what sham while they're using. Anybody can change any stats, any time. Talk to the people on the street. They are telling us, and we are showing you through our social media page exactly what's going on in this system. We have units coming from all over the province trying to get to calls because we don't have the resources. Shay, immediately we need to start moving towards a system that actually takes care of people. What is the emergency system that we expect as a, uh, citizens? What is the health care that we expect as citizens? Because an hour wait for a paramedic is not what I expect. No, I hear you. And uh, there's no question uh, that we are certainly in a situation that uh, is not effective. And I appreciate you coming on and giving, um, you know, uh, the driver's side of of the situation. Mike, I always appreciate it. And uh, thanks for responding to, you know, the statement from AHS. We'll try and get a hold of them. But uh, uh, we'll we'll check in again as this goes along, because uh, as you say, this story has been going on for years and I don't think it's going to end today. You know what I mean? It'll still be a story going forward. I, I think you're right. And uh, and to all those paramedics on the front line, stay safe out there. We're doing what we can. Okay. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Um, that is Mike Parker. He is the president of the Health Sciences Association. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Nation of Alberta. We're hearing more and more about wastewater monitoring of COVID-19 levels. It's really fascinating work that's being done and there is a joint project between the U of C and the U of A that has been doing this for a couple of years right throughout this pandemic and it's really interesting to see the information they've come up with so let's get some insight we're going to chat now with Dr. Benita Lee who is a pediatric infectious disease physician at the Stollery Children's Hospital and an associate professor at the University of Alberta. Dr. Lee thank you so much for your time I appreciate you joining us. Sean, sorry, Shane. It's Benita. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Sorry, Shane. I, no, that's fine. I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I think this is um, it's really really interesting. So just tell us basically how it works. Just it's a project that's got the two schools involved, but it, it hits on multiple communities across the province. Just give us the lay of the land in terms of the work that you've been doing. Sure. First of 
so actually I want to invite, you know, any of the listener right now, if they want to have a computer, they can search for COVID tracker, C-O-V-I-D dash T-R-A-C-K-E-R, because the wastewater data that we have is actually available to the public for testing, you know, of the 17 wastewater treatment plant across the province, and you can look at it. So what happened is, from the science, we know that with COVID-19, the viruses get excreted in the stool. And so, um, first of all, I want to uh, acknowledge my team, because this is really many people work, plus all the collaborator, like all the wastewater treatment plant or uh, institution that let us monitor their wastewater for the presence of the virus RNA in the in the wastewater. So because the virus is being um, shedded in the stool sample, uh, we know that the good thing about wastewater is, if you think about it, with the wastewater treatment plant, for example, serving Edmonton, any of the individual who has COVID and is shedding the virus is contributing, you know, their part of the um, infection in the wastewater mm-hmm. and the team is able to detect you know uh, the presence of the viral rna as well as quantify how much it is so it is a unbiased non-discriminatory measure of how much active you know covid we have in a community now definitely people who are using diapers like babies and elderly will not be included um on the other hand, with wastewater, so it is a very good estimate. What is the disease burden? On the other hand, I want to say is because we're not discriminatory, we don't know the age group, we don't know the disease severity of all these people. Um, but when you mentioned that, you know, testing clinically may not be, uh, you know, available because yeah. of resource or rapid test. So while the um, Public health that can report the numbers by lab testing of individual may not be representing all of is happening, but the wastewater will, as I say, capture anyone who is contributing the virus into the sewage. And so you can see the uh, longitudinal change over time. Right. And we should make clear here, it's not going to say, oh, we have... 550 cases in Edmonton and 602 in Calgary. It doesn't do that. It just says this is the viral load within the wastewater, right? It can't give you numbers. Correct. Thanks so much for bringing that up, Shane. Like, we cannot translate what we detect in the stew exactly to what number of people have the disease. However, what we do find is we use a word correlate, meaning that, you know, for the study we have done so far since uh, basically... um, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we know that, you know, the rate of change of uh, the level of RNA that we can detect in the stew actually mirrors very well with the rate of change of increase, you know, in the population. So it correlates really well. But we have to remember with wastewater, each point as a data point, um, you know, has a possibility of being, um, we call it an outlier. So whenever we see a change, for example, it was high and then it goes quite low. We have to wait for the next point to make sure it wasn't just an outlier. Yep. We have to look at the things over time. Yeah, an ongoing trend makes perfect sense. Um, but it is, in terms of time, uh, from what I'm seeing, and I, I, there's a bunch of discussion right now about what's happening in the northeastern United States because they're relying heavily on wastewater monitoring. I don't know if I'm sure you're on top of their data, but um, they sort of put it up as it's very reactive in terms of time because it's it's almost a real-time monitoring of what's going on, whereas with PCR testing and the like, you have to get people, have they have to be symptomatic, they have to go down and get tested, the test has to be run, then the results have to be reported. This is sort of monitoring almost in real time. I mean, not immediate, but is it more quick and more reactive in that sense? Yes, it is 
display, as I say, because if I have COVID and I go to the bathroom and then I shed my virus, it go into a sewage right away. Yeah. And we do collect. So right now, many thanks to, you know, our health uh, supporting the program. Right now, we actually get a sample from waste watchman plant three times a day. We still need time, you know, to test the sample because it is actually uh, quite a intricate process to process the sample and to test it to find the RNA. So it is actually... Uh, there is still a lack for testing, but then we are trying our best to present things as fast as we can. And also, you know, there is also transport time, you know, from the sure. wastewater treatment plant to come to the lab. But actually, all these, you know, delay, when I say I use the word delay, but the time needed for specimen to be collected, transported, and tested, the same for wastewater, the same for clinical sample. But we are able to test the population as it is. Uh, without having to collect sample from everyone, we just need the wastewater sample. Um, so it, you're, it's 17 wastewater treatment plants or pump stations covering a total of 24 cities and towns across the province and one smaller community. And I know yes. Dr. Hinshaw was saying months ago that they can use wastewater to sort of monitor where outbreaks may be occurring, regardless of testing. So, I mean, that kind of information, you can be fairly specific in terms of you know, sampling different geographic regions of the province based on the wastewater in that area, right? So, great question, because, like, when you mentioned about the wastewater treatment plant, it's a big geographic area, and, you know, depending on the wastewater treatment plant, the size of population monitor is different. And we find that there is an important point I want to uh, emphasize is people cannot compare the number of the virus-like level of one wastewater treatment plant with another, because yeah. each wastewater treatment plant with this population have its categories characteristics. And then, you know, we actually have done, you know, study and analysis to see, you know, how sensitive this is for the wastewater treatment plant that we are monitoring, and we're hoping to publish that. Now, on the other hand, there is a different way of using, you know, wastewater monitoring. It's what we call site-specific monitoring. So it could be a long-term care facility, or it could be a hospital unit that we monitor the, you know, wastewater to see if we have um, the viral RNA. And if we actually, you know, find there is viral RNA and there is no known cases in that, you know, um, place, then we definitely need to work with public health and also, you know, the uh, person who operate those sites to see what is going on. And so there is a separate study that we also started, like, in Edmonton, um, and also Calgary is doing that now as well, that there are some site-specific monitoring that we're doing that we can actually look into more, because the population is smaller, it is more amenable to for public health to do. Again, wastewater never replaces clinical testing because we need a clinical testing sometimes to identify people that are at high risk for COVID and need the testing. But majority of us right now, you know, there is so much... Uh, Omicron. Yeah. If I'm sick, I need to isolate. I probably have it. I don't necessarily need to be tested. Exactly. So those people aren't being tested. So that 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 data set is lost, um, other than the work that you're doing. It's interesting to me. How? I mean, is it just basically you you get virus? I, I don't cells. I don't know if that's the right word. But sa- specimen samples. I mean, you can differentiate between different strains of the virus in the wastewater, right? I mean, so is it just basically yeah. the same thing as the test that we're doing? Yes. Thanks for mentioning that, Shane. And most importantly, I want to say it's not you, my doing. It's actually a whole team sure, and many yes, people yeah. doing. And then, you know, the um, we can actually... So it is the genetic material of the virus. So, you know, our team um, is very good. We can actually 
with help from actually, I would say, uh, collaborative work with different teams across Canada, we can actually, you know, sequence and identify. For example, we have been looking at how much um, the RNA in the so the genetic material is called RNA in the wastewater is actually Omicron, or how much is it there we can detect in terms of Delta, the previous strain. So we actually have uh, interesting data to show, you know, how um, Omicron is moving into a community in terms of testing the wastewater to see, you know, uh, comparatively whether uh, Omicron is really taking over or we are still, we are seeing half and half, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Two more for you. First of all, so you've got that information. You can see it's really moving into a community. It's taking over. Omicron is now that. What can we do with the information that you're gleaning from wastewater? How has our province taken that and reacted or changed or adapted what they're doing? I mean, how is this data being used? Yes, what I can tell you is, um, you know, the Pan Alberta Wastewater Monitoring Team has been sharing data with both Alberta Health and Alberta Health Services, and they have their special team to, you know, use the wastewater data in a way that will be helpful for them to project things. I cannot speak to that detail because I'm not part of those team. And um, and again, I want to say wastewater is very useful. It is supplementary because it cannot replace clinical testing. Um, but I'm, I know that, you know, all my colleagues in public health are and Alberta Health are using this to help, you know, how to manage things. I just can't speak to the specific. Um, how often, like, are do you have data sets that you can point to every day, every three days, once a week? Like, how does it, in terms of, okay, we're monitoring what's going on in Edmonton and we're monitoring what's going on in Calgary and we can sort of lay this trend out based on what we see every day, every three days, every week? How does it work? Yeah, great question. Uh, sorry, Jane, you're asking so many good questions. So right now we are sampling from wastewater treatment plants three times a week. Okay. And then so every time when the sample get to the lab, lab try to produce the result within 24, 48 hours. And then the data is then put on, you know, the CHI, uh, Center for Health Informatics at UFC COVID tracker. So actually anyone can go on to the site and when you find the COVID tracker web page, you'll see a big provincial map. And then it's on the right-hand side, there is a wastewater tab. You press on it. And I encourage everyone to look first look at the YouTube video because it explains, you know, how the data work and how you can, you know, look at things. And, and then you can actually click on the wastewater treatment plan and see, you know, what is happening across Canada from wastewater monitoring point of view. Okay, so that, that information is available. People can check it out and they can watch the yes. YouTube video to get more info. Um, yes. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for giving us some insight onto how this is working in our province. Uh, we'll check in again. And, and Oh, by the way, where are we? What are you seeing right now Like with your last results in terms of Omicron? Where are we? Is it still continuing to go up and how bad is it getting? It's interesting. It's because it is all different, I think, across Alberta. Okay. So it's hard for me to summarize, but when people look at it, they will get a better sense. So I really encourage people to go to the site and look at the data um, and hopefully, you know, find this meaningful for them. And if I can say just one thing is, um, you know, please do, I hope everyone is healthy. Um, please always, you know, clean hands as you need it. If anyone has symptoms, no matter how symptomatic, sorry, no matter how mild, please isolate yourself. And uh, it is uh, likely Omicron. Not everyone needs to be tested and uh, try not to have, you know, big crowds or shorter events. Uh, we need to kind of slow the curve from going up so that the healthcare system will be okay. Sorry, Shane, for 
taking your time. No, I, I'm I'm delighted. I, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, it's fascinating to me, and I appreciate uh, your expertise and your insight. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Have Thank a great day. You too. That is um, Dr. Bonita Lee, a pediatric infectious disease physician at the Stollery Hospital and an associate professor at the University of Alberta, part of the project, the Pan-Alberta Wastewater Monitoring Project that's taking place. Uh, the U of C and the U of A running this program uh, in conjunction. Uh, it monitors 17 wastewater treatment plants or pump stations, which cover a total of 24 cities and towns and one smaller community. going to cover a little international news here. And uh, I mean, the, the number of different angles and threads that you can tug uh, on this story seem almost endless at this point. We're going to be talking about the situation surrounding Russia and Ukraine and how different countries are being pulled in and out of this. Uh, this morning, Poland's foreign minister said uh, that Europe was closer to war than any time in the last 30 years. Um, Russia making threats, I guess you would call it, to possibly send troops to Cuba uh, and to Venezuela if they don't get what they want. They made a number of demands of NATO. Um, our Prime Minister is saying that Canada will consider further sanctions against Russia because of their activity. Um, there was no resolution in the NATO meetings with Russia over what's going on there. So definitely some tension. And um, our next guest says that's not surprising because when you take a look at what's going on, around this situation right now. We've got um, two parties, being the West and Russia, that really aren't even, they're not even talking the same language. They're not playing the same game. Let's get some insight from Marta Dichuk now, who is um, a scholar in this. She's an associate professor in political science and history at Western's Faculty of Social Science. Marta, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. This situation, I mean... (laughs) It seems like th- there's no resolution in sight. And you say that that's not surprising to you, right? That's sort of pretty entrenched at this point. Well, uh, sadly, that is the case. Because what we have is an international order that was created at the end of World War II that is disappearing. And Russia is not playing by the rules. Now, mind you, there have been incidents before where countries invaded others. But the large powers have always pretty much abided by the the conventions that they themselves created. And this is no longer the case. And what we're seeing now is Russia, under the leadership of Putin, is trying to reestablish its geopolitical uh, situation. They, they want to show the world that they're a great power. And the only way they can think of doing it is using 19th century imperialism and threatening war as opposed to using economic strengths, which they don't have, um, or any other types of strengths. So they're they're reverting back to old-fashioned imperialism and warmongering. And it's very concerning because it's difficult to, to stop them. Who knows if they will actually follow through, but they certainly have that capacity. And we have seen them invade Ukraine. We've seen them invade Georgia. We've seen them help with the bombing in Syria. So there's... There's a track record here that is very, very worrying. You're right. I mean, this goes back a number of years. I mean, the the whole Crimea thing goes back, I think, 2014. So this is this is sort of a continuing pattern of behavior that we've seen over and over. Um, are we seeing a point now, though, where the West and NATO are saying, "Okay, this is it. This is the line in the sand, so to speak," and they're not, you know, and they're taking a much more forceful position, or is it, have they always sort of pushed back? 
Well, they've always stood up to Russia's rhetoric right. with rhetoric of their own. They have always strongly condemned the illegal annexation of Crimea and Russia sending in troops to eastern Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And they've been helping Ukraine in the sense that with, first of all, diplomatic support, second of all, with selling them military equipment and assisting them with training. Um, but they have stopped short of actually taking steps that would really stop Putin. And that's where it gets really tricky because nobody wants to get dragged into a war. Of course. Of course. So we saw this buildup of uh, Russian troops along the border with Ukraine. That's been going on for a while. I mean, it was last month where there were some mm-hmm. Ukrainian politicians who said, hey, they're, they're planning an invasion. There's going to be an invasion in the new year. And um, first of all, um, do you think that's that's likely? Is that something or is this just posturing? What What do you think could happen here? Well, that's a very hard question to answer because we've seen this before. In the spring of 2021, I believe it was in April, Putin did the same thing. He pulled the troops up to Ukraine's border and started threatening. And what he wanted was confessions from the West, particularly the U.S. And he got them. He got what he wanted at the time, which was a meeting with Biden. And he wanted concessions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that, I believe, emboldened him that he saw the West caving. Mm-hmm. And he thought, okay, well, what else can I possibly want? Well, let's do this. And so he's put NATO on the agenda, which frankly is ridiculous because NATO hasn't done anything new over the past 10 years. So him saying that NATO is threatening our security, you know, if he had said that at the moment when NATO started enlarging and accepting East European countries, that could have been an argument. But they haven't done anything over the last while. The, the situation has been stable. So for him to be saying NATO is threatening us is, is just a completely invented narrative. Which brings us to where we are now. We had talks earlier this week involving NATO leaders in mm-hmm. Russia. They broke off uh, yesterday, I believe. Um, and well, they, came, they finished. They didn't break. Okay, they, okay, they fair enough. They completed their negotiations. Um, with no resolution, and, no, and like you say, Russia's no, demands are, you know, uh, we want all NATO troops removed from any country that borders Russia. We want sort of a buffer zone installed, all these sorts of demands. And NATO kind of said, come on, that, That's that, ridiculous. it's not going to happen. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, so there was no resolution, right? Absolutely not. And I don't see how there could be a resolution. And I don't know that Putin actually is looking for a resolution. Because despite everything, he's not stupid. He knows that NATO isn't going to agree to this. Okay. Right? So he's pushing. He's pushing and he wants to see what's going to happen. And that's where it's a little bit scary because uh, there are no easy solutions. Okay. And so his goal is to destabilize to, I mean, he's waiting for divisions within the alliance, which should not be happening. We don't see them yet. Um, but he's just, he's threatening. He's acting like a bully. And this is the time for some brilliant minds to come up with a solution. The same way that our former Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson came up with peacekeeping as a, as a solution to the Suez crisis way back in 56. This is the time for a brilliant mind to come up with a solution because the existing solutions are not very effective. Okay. To talk so- about sanctions is really important. But sanctions need to be reimagined, and there's talk about cascading sanctions, that you put a whole series of sanctions in place that, you know, 
if this doesn't happen, then the next level of sanctions kicks in automatically. Um, so it's time for creative thinking. Now, as you say, um, the, the resolution didn't come from the Russian demands. They didn't get what they wanted, and they're going to continue to push. So the latest that we hear this morning, a Russian diplomat saying, Moscow is now thinking about sending troops to Cuba and Venezuela, um, which obviously would ratchet things up to a new level, right? How realistic is that? Well, that's exactly what they want. They want to keep raising the tensions. And so the challenge for liberal democracies like Canada, the U.S., and everybody else is to come up with a proper response to this, because panicking is not a good idea. Um, but giving in to any of this is also re- impossible. So, I mean, I'm actually very glad I'm not the Prime Minister of Canada or the Foreign Minister, because I don't have a solution. I don't have a solution to this. The only thing is to continue engaging in in negotiations and diplomacy and standing firm and saying this is unacceptable and, you know, let's talk about something else here. But Marta, ultimately, it's all mm-hmm. saber-rattling saber if Putin isn't willing to actually take the next step and invade or start some sort of shooting war. Can the West just ignore I mean, he doesn't want that any more than the West does. Is there really that much risk to be run here? Uh, Good question. Uh, Short answer, we don't know what Putin is actually going to do. Okay, and that's a big risk to leave it up just hanging like that, right? Because given his track record, he could easily do it. Sort of you know, throw caution to the wind and say, okay, I don't know what the end game is here, but I'm not going to back down. I made my threat and I'm going to follow through and then uh, deal with it. I mean, the other factors here are, you know, what's going on domestically in Russia. Putin's popularity is not as high as it used to be. Um, If we look at sort of the geopolitics, China is much more powerful than Russia. Um, So there's a lot of factors here. And, um, I just Putin could easily start military activity again, um, or he could back down. So, so it's it, so when the Polish Prime Minister says today that you know we're closer to war than we have been in thirty years in in Eastern Europe, absolutely, he, he, he's right. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, wow. Uh, I mean, Mar- as I said, though, it's a fifty-fifty chance. Exactly, it could go the other way, but, but I mean, it has it has never been this tense. Since I'm going to say 38, 1938. Wow. Okay. Because I mean, that's when the last time this kind of tension. And I, you know, as a historian, I hate to draw parallels, but I can't help it. So this is worse than um, the Cold War that we all lived through in the in the 70s and 80s. Well, and but there was no physical killing in Europe during the Cold War. And there could be here. Right? And there is physical killing. I mean, when Russia invaded Ukraine, there's physical killing yeah. happening every day. They're shooting, they're destroying infrastructure, they're injuring people. So there's physical violence, physical warfare happening right now, and that has the potential to escalate. And that's that's the scary part. Yeah, the Cold it's scary wars, indeed. There were proxy wars. There were wars in other parts of the world. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, they fought each other militarily through proxy wars in Africa and Asia and Latin America, but they didn't actually fight in Europe. And this is what 
the fear is. So what are you watching in the coming hours, days, weeks, and months? What are you watching? I'm watching carefully what's going on in Moscow and Putin's inner clique. They hold a lot of power, and nobody's really watching them because they're not, you know, not nobody, but that that's not part of the discussion. Um, I'm also watching carefully to see uh, coordination between, continued coordination between all the liberal democracies, and I'm watching China. Those are the things I'm going to be watching. All right, Marta, we'll have you back. made its position clear. Well, thank you. Um, It's not going to be over soon, so... No, exactly, yeah. And uh, you're... you're Stay tuned. You're a great resource and a valuable uh, insight, so uh, we'll we'll check in again. Marta, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That is Marta Ditchuk, who is an associate professor in political science and history uh, in Western's Faculty of Social Science, and uh, she's uh, really, really tuned into that situation along the Ukraine border. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.